What's the truth about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? My guest, Robert Spencer, is going to talk to us today about the Palestinian delusion. It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Is it true that today's Palestinians are originally descendants of the ancient Canaanites? Is it true that there has been a strong Arab presence through the history of the land of Israel? Is it true that Israelis, Jewish people, stole the land from the Arabs? What is true? What is false? What can we know from historical documents? Why is there such a debate over something that is relatively recent in terms of the forming of the modern state of Israel. What is there that maybe we have not been told accurately? We're going to sort that out today. This is Michael Brown and my special guest, Robert Spencer. If you don't follow jihadwatch.org, you need to. It's chilling. It's eye-opening. Whenever there is an attack in the world that seems to be the result of Muslim extremism, the first thing I do is I go to Jihad Watch to see what are they saying about it. Robert Spencer, the author of many books, everything he's written is important. But his newest book, I immediately ordered as soon as I saw it was out and immediately contacted him to ask him to come on the air. The Palestinian Delusion deals with the history of Israel in a way in more depth than anything that he's written thus far. So we're thrilled to have Robert with us today. Welcome back to the Line of Fire broadcast. Thanks so much for joining us. Great to be here. Thank you. So what motivated you to write this? It's, it's a bit broader historical focus. It looks specifically at the land of Israel. Why did you feel it was important to get this book out? Because of the barrage of disinformation and misinformation that's out there now, the whole Palestinian enterprise is probably the most successful propaganda campaign that we've ever seen in human history. And that's no exaggeration. There are people out there who are not only believing lies, but passionately acting upon them. And that includes a great many young Americans who've been taught a lot of falsehoods at colleges and universities in America today. So I thought I would do what I could to try to correct the record and to provide a source book for people who want the truth or want to tell others the truth. And when we talk about the misinformation, the disinformation, uh, today's younger generation is passionate about social justice. They often stand with the underdog. They want to see right treatment of minorities. How has this played out, the disinformation, misinformation about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, especially on our college campuses? Well, I'll tell you, Michael, you know, one of the uh, things that was the Palestinian people was invented for was in order to be able to manipulate that agenda. The Palestinian people, as I show in the book, is a propaganda invention that you never heard a thing about them before the 1960s because they didn't exist. They're the same ethnically, linguistically, culturally as the Arabs of Jordan, of Lebanon, of Syria. And even in 1948, when Israel was being founded and there was, there was war, as a matter of fact, between Israel and the neighboring Arab states, 
and there was all sorts of talk about Israel and the Muslim Arabs of the area, not a word was said about Palestinians. They didn't exist. But because of the commitment in general of the so-called progressive movement to the, the disadvantaged, to minorities, to people who are supposedly disenfranchised, the Palestinian people plays on, the, the invention of the Palestinian people plays on those kinds of sentiments. Because before they were existed, you had tiny Israel surrounded by 22 gargantuan Arab states. And people love the underdog, and people love the the people who are fighting back against oppression and so on. And that was Israel. And so Israel enjoyed a great amount of support in the United States to erode that support. And again, it's been amazingly successful. This even tinier people was invented and is supposedly facing this massive Israeli war machine. And this is all complete fiction, but it plays into that idea that if you want to be on the side of the oppressed and the poor minorities, then you've got to support the Palestinians. And and what about the refugee status that is granted to Palestinians today? Is that unique and different than refugee statuses with with other allegedly displaced peoples? Yeah, it's unique in, in contrast to every last refugee in human history up until now. Uh, there used to be that if you were displaced from your home, you were a refugee. And it was a very simple thing, really. And then if you moved somewhere else and your children were not displaced from their new home, then they were not refugees. For example, I myself am the grandson of refugees from the Ottoman Empire. They were exiled from the Ottoman Empire for refusing to convert from Christianity to Islam. And that was my grandparents. They were refugees. But they came to America. My parents were born here, and I was born here. So my parents are not refugees, and I am not a refugee. However, if I were a Palestinian, then I would be a refugee. The United Nations recognizes for Palestinians and Palestinians only that refugee status is passed on from the people who actually left the area, and I show in the book that they were not exiled, they were not kicked out, they were not expelled or their land stolen, but they actually left voluntarily at the call of the Arab Higher Committee. And their children are refugees, their grandchildren are refugees, and so on. So you have millions of people in the world today who are legally considered by the United Nations Palestinian refugees and are recipients of aid on that basis who never lived there, never lived anywhere close to there. And it's only that their grandparents or great-grandparents were from that area or supposedly from that area. I'm speaking with Robert Spencer. His brand-new book, The Palestinian Delusion, The Catastrophic History of the Middle East Peace Process. And and I want to focus on that word catastrophic a little bit later uh, and, and see if there was a specific reason for you choosing it. But if we go back to this this refugee issue and some of the myths surrounding these things, we will talk about humanitarian treatment. We'll, we'll talk about issues that are of concern. But you mentioned there was a certain degree of sympathy for Israel. It seems that you also have to have a lot of Jewish people die before there can be much world sympathy for the Jewish people. That anti-Semitism seems to be so ingrained that it takes an event like the Holocaust 
to, to almost create sympathy for Israel. And once Israel is doing a pretty good job of defending its borders, then there's not much sympathy for Israel. Do you think that's an overstatement on my part? No, I think you're absolutely right on that, that anti-Semitism is very deeply ingrained in Christianity, unfortunately, and it predates Christianity because there was anti-Semitism among the pagan Romans. Mm-hmm. It is very deeply rooted in Islam in ways that people aren't aware of. And all these things can come together and come together also on the left today. I think that what you have is a strange phenomenon in Europe in particular, but also increasingly in the United States, of post-Christian leftists who are deeply anti-Semitic because they hate Israel. But also this is something that they have heard in their own families and picked up in their environment. And it coalesces with what the lies they're being taught about Israel, such that Israel is the particular focus of the United Nations for human rights abuses when it is very scrupulous in not committing those human rights abuses. And many, many other countries that actually commit real human rights abuses are ignored at the UN. There's no doubt that this, there's a deeply anti-Semitic component that comes from a variety of factors and is responsible for that. And what's, what's so interesting is when you really press it with an anti-Semite, their justification will be, well, the Jews are evil. It, 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 rather than denying it, they'll reinforce it and try to prove it. That's when it becomes more and more scary. All right, so let's, let's go back in, in history. And where would be a good starting point if, if we want to catch up? Do you want to go back to the Ottoman Empire? Do we want to go back to days before that? Give us an overview of what the population of what was known as Palestine from the second century on, what, what the population looked like there in the land. Well, in the first place, Michael, it's important to emphasize that the land was known as Palestine from the second century on because the Romans renamed it that in the right. year 134 AD after the Bar Kokhba revolt among the Jews. Bar Kokhba was a false messiah who led the Jews on an armed revolt against the Romans. They lost and were exiled from the land. And Judea, the land of the Jews, was renamed uh, Palestine. Palestine, however, was not the name of the people. It was a name that had been plucked out of the Bible by the Romans, as it was the name of the ancient enemies of the Jews who no longer existed in the world, the Philistines. But for the Romans, it was just the name of the region, the name they gave the region. It was like uh, Brooklyn or Staten Island. It was always the name of an area, but never the name of a people or a nationality. And even though Jews were legally barred from living there after 134, many of them didn't comply, and the Roman decree was never fully enforced, such that there was a Jewish presence in that land uninterrupted from way before 134 AD up until today. And the same cannot be said of any other people. The Arabs didn't come in until the 7th century, and then the Turks later. And uh, by the end of the 19th century, the land is part of the Ottoman Empire, and the Ottoman Empire is weakening, such that when the Ottoman Empire fell at the end of World War One, you have Israel, the land that is now Israel, being ceded by the Ottoman Empire in its last days to the League of Nations. And the League of Nations, the precursor to the United Nations, then established, gave it, gave administration of the land to Britain specifically expressly for the establishment of a Jewish national home. And so 
the it's kind of ironic that people say this is occupied land or stolen land. Ask them who's who's it stolen from, and if they have any historical knowledge and any honesty, then there's no answer to that because the land wasn't actually stolen from anyone. There never was a Palestinian state. There never was a Palestinian nationality. Uh, the idea that Jews took Palestinian land is belied by the historical record. This land was is set aside by the governing authority to be a Jewish national home, which is what it became. All right. When we come back, friends, I want to look at what happened in the late 1800s as Jewish immigration increased into what was then called Palestine, what happened then with Arab immigration, what numbers looked like, and then what was happening? Are, are there origins to jihad that go back to 1920s or 30s? Were there arrangements that were offered to the Arabs and the Jews before 1947? My guest, Robert Spencer, the brand new book, you need to get it, The Palestinian Delusion. We'll be right back. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks, friends, for joining us on the Line of Fire. I'm speaking with author Robert Spencer. His website, jihadwatch.org. Important, sobering website to check regularly. His newest book, The Palestinian Delusion. So, Robert, how, how heavily populated was the land of Israel, then called Palestine. Say in the, the, the mid-1800s, say around the time Mark Twain went there, other, others going there, how, how did they describe the land? Well, I'll tell you, I've got quite a lot of information about this in the book. Mark Twain had some celebrated quotes that a lot of people are familiar with, I think, where he speaks about walking for miles and not seeing anybody and the land being desolate and forsaken. And uh, this was echoed by many, many other people, missionaries and uh, people of all kinds, travelers who went there. Uh, It was not a thriving Muslim-Arab land. It was a place where very few people lived that was extremely poor and had very difficult circumstances because the land was not very fertile or easy to farm. It was only when the Zionist movement began that not only did the Jewish population pick up in the area, but also the Muslim Arab population, because the Muslim Arabs actually followed the Jews to the land in order to uh, gain gain from the economic opportunities that they offered. And what's ironic is that uh, while the Arab Muslim population rose sharply in Palestine when the Jews started to arrive, and in connection with their arrival, then those people who were all from somewhere else turned around and claimed that they were the indigenous people of the area and that the Jews had stolen their land. All right, so what you're saying is there was a certain Arab population in the land, a certain Jewish population. Let's say the Arab population was higher than the Jewish population, but both small. Jewish Jewish immigration begins to increase in the late 1800s. The land has now developed more. With that is now an increased Arab immigration because the land is being worked more and and there's more job opportunities for the Arab population. So the Arab population is still bigger than the Jewish population, but they're still 
fairly small compared to our, our numbers today. And, and pretty much they are coexisting, right? Would, would that be a fair picture to say be, before Hajimina Husseini in the 1920s that the Jewish and Arab populations were working together fairly well? Fairly well, uh, for the most part. There were some difficulties now and again. But yeah, um, certainly the it was widely understood then in a way that it's not now among the Arabs that the Jews had always been there. And there was even a, uh, a Jew, an Arab Muslim leader who, at the beginning of the Zionist movement, wrote a letter to Jewish leaders saying, look, yes, of course this is your land, but you really should not come back and settle in it uh, for various reasons that he uh, had of his own that are explained in the book. The uh, existence of both the Arabs and the Jews was taken for granted as long as the Jews maintained the dhimmi status, the status of second class under Islamic law that prevailed throughout the Ottoman Empire until the 1850s. The abolishment, the abolition of the dhimmi status in the 1850s by the Ottoman Empire under pressure from the British, as a matter of fact, the British and French, and that combined with the beginning of the Zionist movement a few decades after that, uh, created the uh, resentment among the Muslim Arabs of the area because they believed that this was land that was ruled by Islam and under the law of Islam, any land that is ruled by Islamic law at one point belongs by right to Islam forever. And so they were deeply threatened by the uh, beginning of the Zionist movement. But this was something new. It wasn't that Jews had never been there and people were angry because they started to show up. Their Jews had always been there, but it's that they stopped accepting the idea that they had to live indefinitely under the hegemony of Islamic law. Got it. And then things heat up. What happens in Hebron? When, when does the violence start against the Jewish people? Well, one of the worst things that uh, mars this whole sorry history, and it is a sorry history, the history of the uh, Middle East peace process and the history of the uh, establishment of the State of Israel. It's just full of people behaving abominably. And one of them was Colonel Bertie Harry Waters Taylor, who was a British officer in Palestine in 1920. Now, the British had just gotten the, the, the made the Balfour Declaration in 1917, calling for a Jewish national home. And they were about to receive the mandate for Palestine that echoed that they had the responsibility to create a Jewish national home. But the British had also uh, allied with the Arabs against the Ottoman Empire during World War I. And there were many British, including T.E. Lawrence, the famous Lawrence of Arabia, who thought that the Arabs deserved a reward for helping the British against the Ottomans. And so they were against the idea of a Jewish national home. They wanted to give the area to the Arabs. So Bertie Harry Waters Taylor actually went to the Mufti of Jerusalem, Hajimin al-Husseini, and told him that if the Arab Muslims started to commit terror attacks in that area, then there would be influential British leaders and military officials as well who would turn against the Zionist project. 
And so in order to get them to abandon it, terrorism was the way to do it. That is something that a British official actually told to the Mufti, and obviously the Muslim Arabs of Palestine followed that advice and continue to follow it. So there was British advice behind that. Fascinating to, to hear that, that part of it, which is, is often not told. So then you, you have outright slaughter of Jews in Hebron. You have these violent uprisings. And then there's a peace proposal in, in the 1930s, which actually would have been better than the 1947 proposal. What happened to that, and how did the Arab leadership respond to that? Well, see, this is the beginning of the intransigence that we see uh, even to this day. That there, had, that there was the peace proposal that you mentioned in the 30s. There have been so many since then, right up to today with Trump's deal of the century and so on. And in every one of them, the Palestinian Arabs have to accept a presence of a Jewish community that will be essentially autonomous and not under their rule. And that's something that they will not accept and cannot accept because of the dictate in Islamic law that Islam must dominate and not be dominated. And they believe that because this land is uh, land that was once ruled by Islamic law in the Ottoman Empire and before that in the Arab Empire, that therefore it has to be ruled by Islamic law forever. And the Quran says in chapter 2, verse 191, drive them out from where they drove you out, which is a very, very significant statement. The uh, Arabs were not driven out of Israel, and I show that in many ways. Notably, in 1948, they were not driven out. They left because the Arab Higher Committee ordered them to do so. But nonetheless, it is part of the mythology that is uh, a construct of the whole Palestinian case here, which is all mythology. Part of the mythology is that uh, the Jews drove them out of their land. So they have a divine command. They have what is the equivalent for Jews and Christians of one of the Ten Commandments. They have a command from Allah to drive out those who supposedly drove them out. So they could not accept the peace agreement that was offered them in the 30s, or the partition that was offered them in the 40s, or any of the other peace agreements that have been negotiated since then, even when they were negotiated by Muslim Arab leaders. They were done so for the purpose of gaining concessions from Israel that would weaken it, not in order to establish the framework for genuine peaceful coexistence as equals on an indefinite basis. And we just have a minute before the next break, but uh, when you quote the Quran, is this something that is in the conscious mind of these Palestinian leaders? Are some of them more secular? Is, is it just kind of an undercurrent? Or is this something that, that they feel is a divine mandate? It's all about Islam from beginning to end, Michael. Even when uh, in the 60s, the uh, Palestinian-Israeli conflict was part of the Cold War, and the Palestinians were allied with the Soviet Union, and there were a lot of, there was a lot of communist rhetoric coming from Palestinian leaders. Even then, the backdrop of it was all Islam, and now it's much more explicit that uh, this is an Islamic imperative. If you read the statements of Palestinian leaders, and I have many of them in the book, you'll see that they consistently 
speak all about Islam, that their objection to Israel is based on Islam. And some have even said, even if Israel is destroyed, our hatred of the Jews will continue, which shows that their hatred of the Jews is based on Islamic Quranic anti-Semitism and not a dispute over uh, the land of Israel. And yeah, so the, the, the land would just conflict. be, yeah, the land would just be the, the latest exacerbation of an older conflict. All right, friends, I'm speaking with Robert Spencer, his new book, The Palestinian Delusion. And uh, actually, just got one one more second here. Um, when we come back, I, I, I want to ask you about some liberal Jewish scholarship, even Israeli scholarship, that will often push back against this narrative, have an argument that is much more sympathetic to the Palestinian narrative. I want to get into that and then find out, okay, when we speak about the Palestinians today, who are they really? Where do they come from? So again, the book, The Palestinian Delusion, the author, Robert Spencer, the website, jihadwatch.org, for much larger reporting on what is being done in the name of Allah by committed Muslims around the world today? I'll be right back. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Just a few days ago, I saw a brand new book out by Robert Spencer, The Palestinian Delusion. I didn't ask the publisher to send it to me so I could consider having Robert on as a guest. I bought the book immediately, and I emailed him immediately and said, hey, can you come on and discuss it? as he gets into meticulous detail about the history of the region and who the Palestinian people are today. I noticed in our YouTube chat that someone said, well, you have Robert Spencer on, you should have the other side on, in reference to a, a Jewish professor, Richard A. Falk, who has very, very different views about the Middle East and history. So that leads to a question, Robert. Why is it something that is relatively recent we're talking about something within the last 75 years, the, the bulk of it. Why is it that there can be such different views on it and that you even have well-known Israeli scholars or Jewish scholars who would argue for a narrative very different than the narrative that you present? Well, I don't know why that is in a rational sense, because anybody can look at my book and see that everything is exhaustively documented and based on historical records that are available and can be examined, and I would challenge anyone to find any inaccuracy in the book. Uh, the left, of course, the international left, Jewish and non-Jewish, Israeli and non-Israeli, American and non-American, they all uh, hate Israel and have bought into the narrative that arose in the 60s of the Palestinian people. That narrative arose in the Soviet Union, and it was the creation of the KGB in collaboration with Yasser Arafat. And I think a great many of its elements have taken hold and are taken for granted without being sufficiently examined. 
Also, there is a Palestinian propaganda machine that is insufficiently appreciated that I devote a chapter of the book to that manufactures atrocities committed by Israel with a uh, cleverness and an attention to detail that uh, makes make, takes many people in and makes them think that the IDF is some monstrous force routinely trampling upon human rights. As a matter of fact, just a few days ago, I saw a photo being distributed on Twitter of a little baby, and he was supposedly badly burned by an Israeli airstrike in Gaza that was indiscriminately uh, harming civilians. And then, on closer examination, it turned out that the photo itself came from Iraq in 2017 and had nothing whatsoever to do with Israel. And this kind of thing is routine. I discussed some instances of it in the book, of photos of various atrocities being taken and misrepresented. And I think a lot of well-meaning liberal Jews and non-Jews, leftists of all kinds, they sometimes see these things and don't realize that they're not authentic. And they think that the humanitarian position is to oppose Israel, when actually what's, being, what's happening is, is that they are falling victim to very clever, no doubt, very skillful propaganda, but it's still just propaganda. Yes, yeah, so it may be well-intended, well-meaning, trying to stand for justice, trying to be compassionate, but based on misinformation— it's interesting that in the subtitle of your book, The Palestinian Delusion, you say the catastrophic history of the Middle East peace process. To me, there was a double meaning there because of the whole concept in the Muslim Arab world that this is al-Nakba, this is the catastrophe. Uh, what Jews would celebrate as the founding of the modern state of Israel is mourned in, in the Arab world as al-Nakba, the, the catastrophe. But there's a book I, I read some years ago by Samuel Katz, I believe, And he said it's fascinating that when you look at the Arab press at that time, the Arab press is not reporting this catastrophe, this crisis. Uh, Did you find that as you go further back in history, that even the sources that were sympathetic to to the Muslim Arab position were not reporting this mass of driving out of refugees by the Jews? Uh, Have you been able to document that? Yeah, as a matter of fact, uh, Samuel Katz, has a great deal of information, and I have more on it in my own book, about how the Arab leaders actually told the Arabs to leave. The Arab Higher Committee, which was headed incidentally by that same Mufti of Jerusalem that we discussed earlier, Hajimin al-Husseini, uh, they told, they issued orders to the Muslim Arabs of Palestine to leave the area in 1948. Uh, this is attested in multiple sources and many of them at Muslim Arab sources themselves, but not nowadays, only at the time, only in the late 40s and early 50s, was it widely reported that the Arab Higher Committee had told them to leave because the Arab states were going to go to war with Israel, the newly declared state of Israel. They were going to destroy it, and these people would be able to, they they were thinking, they'd be able to come back to their homes in a matter of weeks. Um, And they wanted them out of the line of fire in the meantime. Of course, things did not work out the way they planned. They did not win the war, and so those people were not able to go back to their homes, and they were considered to be uh, hostile to Israel for quite understandable reasons. Uh, But the idea that they were driven out, that they were exiled, that they were kicked out, there's just no historical basis for that. And And, and, 
just Palestinian propaganda. Uh, Ephraim Karsh in his Palestine Betrayed book, as as sources were released, original documents that were released after a period of years, as he began to dig into these many Arab documents, uh, he found consistently the same thing, uh, even even leaflets that were being passed out by the Israelis, saying by the Jews that were about to become Israelis, saying, hey, there's room here for both of us and, and stay. It's going to be safe. We want you as our neighbors and, and things like that. There was a concerted effort to get that message out. And then others saying, hey, the canon can't distinguish between a Jew and, and, and an Arab, so get out, we'll destroy the Jews, and then you can come back to your, to your lands. In the midst of all this, though, Robert, were there any excesses, in your view, committed by the Israelis? Or if you go back before the foundation of the state, the Irgun or the Stern Gang, were there any uh, efforts by the Jews then that would be considered terroristic or, or wrong? Would you say that, that the Jewish population was always behaving in a totally ethical way and the only ethical violations were on the other side or that there were violations on both sides uh, in the midst of a war for independence? Well, it's certainly widely believed that there were violations on both sides, and many people of goodwill will say that, for example, this the, the blowing up of the King David Hotel in Jerusalem was an example of the uh, Ergun and the Stern gang committing atrocities of their own. Uh, however, even there, the, the Israelis were scrupulously ethical and careful. Uh, I mean, I'm not approving of the blowing up of the hotel, but it was the headquarters of the British in the area, and the Israelis wanted to establish a state, and the Irgun and the Stern Gang were fighting against the British presence in the area, as well as the Muslim Arabs who were committing acts of terrorism. And they warned the British that if they didn't leave the hotel, the hotel would be bombed, and it would be bombed at this particular time. Yep. And that people should get out of the hotel because it was going to be bombed. And the British paid no attention to this. And so you got to wonder, well, was it, whose responsibility is that when they were uh, doubly and triply warned? It's the same kind of thing we see happening nowadays in Gaza, when Israel is the only military on earth that actually warns the population before dropping bombs. And yes, bombs are dropped in civilian areas. And a lot of people say, see, they drop bombs in civilian areas. Well, this is a necessity because Hamas and Islamic Jihad mount attacks from civilian areas. They base their operations in civilian areas so that they can draw retaliatory fire that they can use for propaganda purposes. And Israel tries to counter that by destroying the Hamas and Islamic Jihad installations, dropping leaflets the day before, or uh, knocking on the roof, it's called, dropping non-incendiary devices onto the roofs of buildings that house Hamas operations, and warning the people to get out. So that then when the installation, the Hamas operation is destroyed, nobody is there, or nobody needs to be there. And we see here again that these, these things are manipulated anyway. And you have patently, obviously fake photos of, of uh, buildings that have been destroyed. And then in the middle of all this dust and rubble and disarray, you have a, a, a little pink teddy bear or something thrown on top. And it's untouched, and there's no dust on it, which ought to tip you off that it wasn't really there and there weren't any kids there, but it's all just propaganda. It's used for those purposes. Israel is the most scrupulous army in the world in avoiding civilian casualties. You know, it's interesting, Robert, and I don't think you would know this. 
uh, a friend of ours with a ministry in, in England and the States that specially works with young people uh, from young teenagers up through folks into their 20s. They brought a group of young people from America and Europe over to Israel. And some of them were pro-Israel coming. Most of them really didn't know what to expect. And they spent extensive time. They, they met with local Palestinian leaders, government leaders, others, people who said, hey, my brother was killed by Israeli soldiers. They, they met with them. They spent hours. They stayed uh, in the hotels there and, and met in, the, in homes and in places of government and things like that, heard their stories, many moving stories. Then they met with Israelis. Same thing. They met with, with IDF. They, and they came out saying, why? The Israelis are really trying hard to get this right, and it's clear the Palestinians have it in for them. Again, that was their impression. It's all documented in a video when they were there on the ground looking at things. And because I have so many friends that live in Israel, when there's war going on, they'll sometimes text or email, say, hey, please pray for my son. He's going into battle now. And they have to be so careful to avoid civilian casualties that it puts them at greater risk. So, yes, things do go wrong. And, yes, things have been done wrong. But they're normally immediately prosecuted and looked into uh, again, one minute before the break, and, and then I want to focus on who the Palestinian people are today. But from your view, is it really that one-sided? I mean, I know you're meticulous in your research. You know how to get both sides of a story. You're presenting one side. Is it really that one-sided? Well, I can tell you another thing, Michael. Of course, no entity in this world is perfect. And mm-hmm. certainly there have been Israelis who have mistreated Palestinian Muslim Arabs. And then what happens to them? Invariably, they go on trial. And if they're found guilty, then they are sentenced to prison. Whereas the Palestinians, when they commit atrocities against Israelis, they're celebrated as heroes and candy is passed out on the streets of Gaza. That's the key difference here. Uh, it's not that the, the Israeli army has never done anything wrong. That would be a silly thing to say. But when they do... This is not something that is ordered from higher-ups, and it is not something that goes unpunished. The same cannot be said of the other side. Yes, so so one side, tragically, is dancing in the streets, celebrating the slaughter of Israelis. The other side in Israel is protesting and saying, we need to bring these people, our own people, to justice. So who are these millions and millions of Palestinians? We know they exist in Gaza and the so-called West Bank and other nations. Who are they? We'll be right back talking about the Palestinian delusion with Robert Spencer. It's the line of fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Get into the line of fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Friends, I want to encourage you to find out the facts about the Palestinian-Israeli conflict in detail. What Robert Spencer writes is very readable, but is meticulously documented. His new book, The Palestinian Delusion. If you're convinced he's wrong and you think he is being one-sided in this presentation, get the book, as he says, check the sources, check the quotes, check the data. He invites it. He welcomes it. He gladly debates with those who differ. So, Robert, we know that there are millions of people today who identify as Palestinians. We know that the population within Israel proper 
of, of Arabs who remained in the land maybe went from about 200,000 to roughly one and a half million. We know the roughly 600,000 or so that were displaced are now multiplied millions, some in Gaza, some in what's called the West Bank, so Judea, Samaria, some in, taken into other countries, still living as refugees, amazingly, in these Muslim countries. But who are these people? That's one. And I want to make sure we get to the second question because it's the last question of the book. Where do we go from here? So first, who are these people? And then where do we go from here? Well, Michael, you know, I was talking to a Palestinian a few years ago, and it was a very interesting conversation because he was explaining to me about how he was indeed Palestinian, that he was a tremendous foe of Israel and so on. And then along in the course of the conversation, which was very cordial, he started to tell me about how he was Armenian and his grandparents had come from Armenia to the uh, to the land of Palestine in the early 20th century in order to take advantage of the economic opportunities there. And so I think his experience and his family's experience in a microcosm is the answer to who are these people. They're mostly from somewhere else. And their surnames often betray that, because uh, Muslim Arabs often have surnames that denote where they're from. And you have a great many Palestinians whose names show that they ain't from there. They're from elsewhere. Uh, You also have the uh, fact that the Arabs of the area are pretty much the same as the Arabs of Syria, Lebanon, and Jordan. As a matter of fact, there's no difference in terms of religion, in terms of language or culture, ethnicity. They're Arabs, and they're pretty much the same as the Arabs from all over the region, which is why, <clears throat> excuse me, they were so much. They were. It was not a difficult thing for them to pick up and move to a place where the people who were where the Arabs were pretty much like the Arabs where they had left. It wasn't a huge displacement like moving from. Europe uh, or the Middle East to the United States would be. And so what you have are Muslim Arabs, who are the same as the Muslim Arabs of the surrounding areas. And the idea that they are different and a distinct people is, here again, a propaganda creation to manipulate people. Right. So there was no such thing as a Palestinian state or Palestinian people, even though there were some that had lived in the land for generations and their families were displaced with the war, the War of Independence in 1948 when Israel was attacked by the surrounding Arab nations, there was no historic Palestinian people or Palestinian identity. There was greater Syria that people were part of or they had tribal identities. So the idea of a Palestinian people, we are the Palestinians, that itself is a myth. But the fact is, right now, there's a difficult situation with several million people, uh, a situation that could have been resolved decades ago if either the Arab leadership had accepted a two-state solution, either in the 30s or in 47 with the partition plan. And then since then, if the surrounding Arab nations had just absorbed the refugees as Israel absorbed the maybe 800,000 refugees that had to flee from surrounding Arab Muslim lands in 1947, 1948. So how do we move forward from here? I mean, what are the solutions? What, what's viable? What's doable? We can't just turn our back on their situation today. What's to be done? Well, you know something, Michael? Earlier on, you were asking me about 
uh, Israeli scholars, Jewish scholars who dispute some of the things that I'm saying. Mm-hmm. And I uh, responded by talking to you about the power of propaganda. And I think that the Israeli government has not been its own best friend in sometimes not fighting energetically against that propaganda. Yep. Now, this all started in the 1970s when Menachem Begin, the prime minister of Israel, was at Camp David with Jimmy Carter and Anwar Sadat, the president of Egypt. And Sadat and Carter were pressuring Begin to accept the existence of the Palestinian people. Now, I can't really fault Begin for not being able to hold firm against them because it was two against one, and they had all sorts of uh, ways to make sure that it was going to happen anyway, whatever Begin wanted. But Begin actually brought in Samuel Katz, who we discussed earlier, and tried to show Carter the real history of the region, and Carter just didn't want to hear it. He was completely closed off to any possibility that the Israelis might be in the right. But what needs to be done now is a rescinding of that recognition of the Palestinian people and beginning to speak the truth about how these are the Arabs of Jordan and Lebanon and Syria. And Jordan and Lebanon and Syria need to take them in, as you have noted, the way that refugees have been taken in for centuries, and ultimately they settle in their new places and there's no problem. Actually, Jordan is on land that was supposed to be devoted to the Jewish national home, but was detached in the 1920s for another Arab state. And that Arab state, those people there, that's the Palestinian state. They're not any different from the Palestinians. So why can't the Palestinians go there if they refuse to obey the laws of Israel and live there? So just have an expanded uh, Jordan, which is what population is probably well over 60 percent would be called so-called Palestinian or same ethnic origin. So uh, why do you think the other surrounding Arab nations have not more readily welcomed those that identify as Palestinians? They haven't because they want to keep the refugee problem alive as a stick to beat Israel with. The Lebanese, the Syrians, the Egyptians, they have not granted the Palestinian citizenship. If you're a Palestinian uh, Muslim Arab who identifies as Palestinian and you go to Lebanon, they won't let you become a Lebanese citizen because they want to keep you around as a refugee so they can point to you and say, look how terrible Israel is, when really it's they who are being terrible or the problem would have been solved decades ago. And so they need to be compelled by the international community. If the international community were remotely sane or honest, they need to be compelled to reverse those policies and grant these people citizenship. And that's one of the simple questions I've asked when I've been in these debates or a couple of years ago when I was the only pro-Israel speaker at a Palestinian Christian conference. The simple question is, why is it that the Arabs who stayed in the land of Israel have flourished, gone from 200,000 to one and a half million and have more rights and freedoms than any other Arabs in the Middle East? Why is that the case? Why is it that the Arabs who are in Lebanon, who are in Syria, are still in refugee camps? There are even refugee camps in, in, in so-called West Bank, Palestinian refugee camps. They were trying to explain, the Palestinians were trying to explain that to me, and I thought, how, how bizarre. But that, to me, is the greatest issue, the greatest proof, that those who stayed and became Israeli citizens have grown and, and thrived in numbers, and, and those that went to other countries, if they were even admitted there, are still treated as refugees. And there was even an edict from the Arab League in the 50s saying that they, they will be treated uh, as as refugees. They will not be incorporated as citizens. And this is intentionally to leave this as an open wound and an open sore. 
So, Robert, I'm, I'm so pleased that you spent the time to document this, to write this. And the last last minute, uh, who do you want to read this book? Were, were you writing it for one particular audience or for a broad audience on all sides? Well, really, yeah. I, I hope that, of course, it's read by anybody who has interest in this conflict. But I'm hoping that policymakers in Washington will read it and recognize that our whole stance toward this conflict has been based on false premises for decades and that those need to be corrected. And I'm also hoping that uh, parents will compel their college students to read it and that young people will see that when they're out there marching for Palestine and all that, that they're being manipulated and they're not really working for justice at all. Yeah. And, and friends, if you care about justice, then you've got to care about truth. And if we get the history right and understand some of the role of Islam in this as well, we can do a much better job towards working towards a viable solution for everyone living in the Middle East so that there can be justice for all. Hey, Robert, thanks for the hard work. Thanks for joining us again on such short notice. Much appreciated. Much, much, I much appreciate it myself, Michael. Thank you. All right. Thanks. Again, Robert Spencer, the book, The Palestinian Delusion. And as I'm doing this interview, I look up on our YouTube screen and I see someone referencing, hey, there were Israelis that were dancing on buildings, five Israelis dancing on buildings when they saw the, the Twin Towers coming down, etc. Oh, sorry, on our Facebook chat there, uh, referencing that. Uh, you're sure? You're sure about that? You're sure that Israelis were celebrating the fall of the Twin Towers? That there's nothing more to that story? And are you implying that Israel was behind the terrorist attacks? Please. And and there is a massive difference. Let's not look at an alleged isolated incident of of a few people. And it's alleged, okay? Let's not look at that. Let's look at how a populace as a whole responds. Let's Let's look at the fact that under Palestinian rule, the men and women who lose their own lives killing innocent Israelis, men, women, and children, suicide bombers, are hailed as martyrs and hailed as heroes. It is a culture that is dangerously wrong, a culture that needs the truth of the gospel and the truth of history, and out of that, the truth of justice. Change the world.